Hello and welcome to another episode of the Technical Roundup podcast brought to you by the FTX app. We've got a very special and different episode today. I mean, obviously every Technical Roundup is special and different. But on this occasion, instead of having just broad themes we talk about with guests, we have a just a long list of crypto terms and crypto native language and terminology, jargon, whatever you want to call it. Things that feature quite regularly in our vernacular, but we're all you know, crazy crypto native. We spent all day on Twitter for like several years now. And I just felt like a lot of the terms and, you know, terminology that we take for granted and use day day to day isn't necessarily well-defined. And I think this really became obvious to me when Web3 just suddenly went from never seeing it to being the only thing you see on Twitter. And I just felt like it snuck up on me. You know, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but Web3 just became like this massive thing within the space of three, four months. And I was like, wait, we, <laughs> no one's bothered to define these terms. What does it mean? And it just got me thinking that we, we use language very liberally and kind of get used to it in the crypto space. So why not get someone who's really smart and does all this stuff? And the two primitive people in the show, which is Don and myself, obviously, we're just going to throw terminology at the smart person and get them to define the terms for us. How does that sound? Yeah, works for me. Don, does that kind of relay your experience of, you know, we just take crypto native language for granted and then, you know, if you're looking from the outside in, it's like we're speaking a different language sometimes. That's what I feel like anyway. Like, have you ever tried yeah, to explain crypto to a normal person then you realize how abnormal you are, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I know the feeling because sometimes you actually use terms without ever having looked them up. And then you realize, oh, this actually, I mean, it does mean what you think it does, but in a different way, um, just because you kind of get used to it, you see it and you don't immediately look it up. Yes. And then you see like the context in which it's used. And sometimes it's nice to actually know what exactly it means and how it's used. Properly. We're going to try to do that. Our guest is very well equipped to do so. It's CMS intern. I want to start by dispelling the FUD, which I do every time I speak to him, which is that you're no longer an intern, right? You're straight up. I don't know what the formal title of the role is. Is it like associate? I don't know how CMS structures stuff. But yeah, who, who are you? Yeah, um, so true. No longer an intern. Um, that's going on almost a year now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we like kind of have official titles at CMS, but not really. They're pretty relaxed with that. I think, I think I'm technically investment portfolio manager. Oh, look at that! Um, but but something along. Yeah, I don't think I've ever actually used that term before. I think they just used it for the contract. <laughs> um, but yeah. Don, you see, every time someone comes on Technical Roundup, they've had some sort of promotion or progression in their career. Like RV went from head of trading to uh, co PM. Now, CMS intern, no longer an intern. This seems to be the place to get a leg up for your career, which is pretty cool. Yeah. When is it going to happen to us? <laughs> we're, the only, we're the only missing ingredient. I was about to say that. Like, we've never gotten an upgrade yet. <laughs> it's fine. We'll get there. Uh, look, I want to actually start with a bit of a curveball. Uh, and this might set some context, because basically for our audience, we've broken down the terms we want to ask into three broad categories. The first, which is kind of VC probably the most uh, obscure to, to most people who don't directly partake in that part of crypto. The second is blockchain fundamentals, for lack of a better term. And then the third one is blockchain use cases, right? All the, all the stuff we're used to. So when it comes to the first one, before we get into the actual terminology, this is a bit of a curveball, right? So in terms of stuff that's pertinent at the moment and what the community is discussing, um, you can't get away from how poorly a lot of Solana ecosystem tokens are performing, right? At, at a certain point, you could just be, especially 
you know, at listing for some generally short period of time, you know, your oxys, your rays, your serums, your maps, whatever they may be, all these Solana ecosystem tokens, um, they got listed, they did really well for like a very short period of time. And then since then, you know, the charts look uh, irreparable, just like this infinite slow bleed. And now the community upon reviewing, or, you know, kind of looking at these poor performing sectors, it seems like a lot of fingers are being pointed at the to tokenomics, uh, and the way that the money was raised for those projects in the first place. So do you just have like an angle or how you're thinking about um, that specific sector doing so poorly? Is it even fair to look at the VC terms and say, you know, this is an obvious problem? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't like comment too heavily on that, I would say. Um, I mean, I definitely think that the Solana ecosystem, when it was being built out, um, we haven't really seen an L2 or an L1 ecosystem be built out kind of from scratch to being so quickly you know, a multi-billion dollar asset. Right now, I think it's like $70 billion. Um, so it happened very fast, and there's a lot of experimenting that that goes along with that, right? Um, Oxy, Radium, kind of some of the early Solana projects had a lot of experimental tokenomics um, going on at first. So, I mean, I think that was the main thing that the team was thinking. Uh, there, there is definitely... Um, a somewhat of a misconception kind of in the public thought sphere around like let's launch a tiny supply of the token and create like this extreme fully diluted value so like insiders can dump on retail um i think that that is definitely that was never the intention of the projects um i think that those kind of the differences between market cap and fully diluted value have um, I mean, I think that the kind of tokenomics there that created that gap and disparity um, were more kind of the experiments that came about with just being early projects in an emerging ecosystem. Um, I mean, you can now go look at some of the newer projects coming out. A lot of them don't have that or have some variation. Um, and a lot of the emission that comes about is also kind of paid out to people who are staking the coins, right? So um, so if say, you know, for example, 10% of a supply is out there in the market um, and the rest, the 90% is going to be emitted over the next like seven or eight years. If you stake your coins, then you don't actually lose, um, like as price goes down, you actually get more coins. So I think they're all just, experiments within tokenomics. Um, it's something that a lot of teams are putting a ton of resources into right now. Um, Delphi Labs has actually been uh, kind of on the forefront of this, trying to figure out what the correct tokenomics are for new coins and new projects. Um, but I think it's just it's just a byproduct of the amount of funding, the amount of growth that we've seen in, in crypto that's been happening so quickly kind of over the last 18 months now. Yeah, and Don, it only becomes a real issue once once these things start going down, right? Everyone's like, wait, maybe we should look at look at this. What what are the drivers here? Once all that supply and all those emissions are unable to be absorbed easily, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we had this kind of meme going on, um, which was uh, fully diluted valuation doesn't really matter um, on Twitter for a while. And that was just in a bull market, it doesn't really, right? But when the market starts uh, going sideways or even down, then people start realizing uh, there's a bunch of coins that can still get unlocked or that can still get dumped. And it's basically almost never ending. 
so people start paying close attention to it. Yeah, for sure. Let's take a swing at some of these terms. I mean, if we if we go to the very top of at least what we've got, and this will all be available, I'm sure, in the description or elsewhere. The first one we've got is seed round. And, you know, for a lot of people, their exposure to crypto will quite simply be, um, you know, onboarding via fiat to like some centralized exchange and then buying the coins and trading the coins available there. Maybe they'll punt futures and <laughs> realize it's a bad idea pretty quickly. But, you know, on the, on the whole venture side of thing, which most people, uh, at least outside of crazy ICO season and some of the modern variants, which we'll talk about as well, um, they're not necessarily partaking in these. So, so like, what is a seed round? Uh, what role do they play in the ecosystem? Is it as simple as just fundraising? Um, let, let, let's start with the basics. Yeah. So a seed round um, is basically when a crypto startup has an idea, they're building out their product, usually their pre-product at this point. Um, so they have their idea, they've tested the market to make sure that it's something that people will want. Um, and then they go to raise money, um, usually from angel investors or VCs in the space. Um, so at this, you're typically looking at somewhere between like a project valuation of like $10 million to like $60 million. Um, and they're looking to raise like five to 10% of their project at that valuation. So kind of to, to sum it up, uh, early stage projects that want to get kind of a kickstart in the space, just raising money from from funds that um, do that in the space. Yeah, I think most people are fairly familiar with that. Where, it you know, where you have to kind of look more carefully is vesting, for example, right? All the stuff like the next three on the list, like vesting, cliff, unlocks, etc. Let's just start with vesting. Um, I, I've seen that term misused a ton and it usually comes up in the conversation of okay well you have all these tokens and whatever the allocations may be to the team etc um you know what kind of access do they have to those tokens and people are trying to get a sense of you know what kind of supply may be hitting the open market i don't know if you want to do vesting cliff and unlocks together or go one by one whatever but you know when we come to accessing whatever tokens you get as a result of the seed round um what do what do some of these terms mean you can lead with vesting if you'd like yeah so vesting is basically the overarching term for how the tokens will get distributed, um, what the timeline looks like for token distribution. Um, so usually that comes in two parts, the cliff and the unlocks. Um, a cliff is basically a period after the TGE, the token generation event, um, where you wait to get your tokens. So if a project has a three month cliff, that means once the token goes live, um, there's no token distribution. And then three months after that, um, the tokens start being distributed. Um, and then unlocks are basically just the day, um, usually like monthly or quarterly or something, where tokens get paid out to the investors. Um, yeah, so, so usually you have, you know, say a three or six month cliff. So the token goes live. Um, there's usually no unlocks there. And then either every day, every month, every quarter, you get a certain percentage of the tokens, um, usually for somewhere between like one year to as long as seven years. Actually, it's yeah. as soon as I buy the token that all the, all the supply hits <laughs> at once. That's my experience. <laughs> Something that we used to have in, in cryptos, whenever like we got token unlocks or something of the sort, price went down because they started getting dumped. Um, Nowadays, it's a little bit different. Do you know, like, the difference between, like, or what happens um, 
when you have unlocks like because we've had like bullish and bearish unlocks do you know why that is yeah so um the bullish unlocks was a meme for for a little while um usually when that happens um and the reason it's a meme is because it's funny right like you would expect if all these investors are getting paid out their tokens um a few of them are going to go market sell the tokens and then that's going to drive price down right so usually you would think unlocks equals price goes down that day or shortly after um a lot of the time though that kind of overlooks um over the counter trading of the tokens so for example like solana was a classic bullish unlock where the market knew that um all these investors were about to get um, a big chunk of solana so the market accounted for that um price dipped down and it was low assuming that the investors were just going to dump on everyone people didn't want exposure to that um but what had actually happened was a lot of these salon investors one they didn't want to sell in the first place and then two any that wanted to sell um actually sold over the counter um to to a different fund that did want it so the unlock technically happened um and none of the investors were selling the token and everyone was like, I thought whales were going to sell on us. I guess it's not happening. Um, so they all bought back in. Uh, so that would be a bullish unlock where people assume it's going to go down. It doesn't happen. And then price ramps up after. Do you think that's generally the exception to the rule when it comes to unlocks or is it entirely contingent on what the state of the market is? Cause obviously that was well-timed with broader market forces generally where everything was pretty positive. Um, so do you think bullish unlocks are you know generally exception to the rule or, or you know what are the what's the dry how much does the how is the market responsible for determining that outside of you know just the terms of the deal yeah um i would i would say probably the exception um i mean every single um situation is is going to be different there i would say usually an unlock wouldn't be i mean you can look at the coinbase ipo right like this isn't a crypto specific thing <laughs> yeah. where people go and invest and then once they get their shares and they go and convert to cash right like that's kind of how all private investment markets work across the world um so like coinbase ipo people were up in enormous amount on their initial investment um the stock went live people pumped it up a ton and then all the people who had their shares to dump just dump them because now that they were liquid, right? So, um, I mean, it happens often. It's kind of just a market force that that you have to take into account now, um, especially crypto. Like, there's a lot of private funding now coming into crypto. These terms are going to get more relevant and kind of happen more often in the space. Um, but yeah, sorry, that's kind of a long-winded answer to to the short question. Yeah, but no, it make, makes total sense. Something that I've been hearing about a lot is actually like that the market for for lock tokens and for everything that's locked basically has become um, much more sophisticated in the last few years. So um, we've seen that with Jewel lately, where there's just a big, big market for lock tokens. So even if they unlock, it's probably not going to be as big of an event, I think. And in a lot of cases, just because the people that want to sell have sold in and even, even the people that have been trading them, they're not sitting on as much of a multiplicator, right? Like if you've been holding something um, from like uh, the seed round to 
to when you can sell it, you probably sit on like a large multiplicator. But uh, if you've been selling that over the counter, like you said earlier, and then someone else bought it and they're sitting on like a 2x, it's much more, uh, it's much less likely for them to just order dump it all because it's much less of a difference. In yeah, my opinion, sure. anyway. Um, what do you, how would you describe uh, FDV or um, fully diluted valuation? Is that like something? Yeah, especially because yeah, at... most people are familiar with market cap, right? That's kind of the go-to when describing, oh, a project's potential. Look, this is X market cap, whereas this other project is Y market cap, which is only a fraction of the first. Therefore, that's all its quote-unquote upside potential. That's become pretty popular. But F FDV is new. At least thinking about it is new. So, you know, how do you define those two and what what's the relationship? How, you know, how do you think about these things? Um, yeah, the good question. Uh, I would say... Well, first, just kind of the definition, right? Market cap is the market price of the coin times the circulating supply. And FDV is the market price of the coin times the total supply. Um, so usually you would think that those things are pretty close, right? Like for Bitcoin is kind of the standard. There's like 18 million or so out in the market and there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. So um, the market cap and the FTV are pretty close, right? Like they're within um, kind of 15% of each other there. So um, something that happened like Solana ecosystem um, definitely got a lot of heat for that when they were experimenting and they would have um, a very small portion of the coin actually out trading in the market. So you would get these super inflated um, FTVs, fully diluted valuations. Um I think it's become more relevant too with uh, these play to earn games that have come out, kind of the projects in the space there. Um, and almost by design, right, it, it has to. So like an early stage game, a lot of these games aren't launched, but they have their token trading just to kind of gauge market sentiment, um, fill up their treasury a bit and invest in the future game. But say, um, say a game has 10% of the token out trading in the market um, the FTV is going to be 10 times higher than their market cap there. But the reason that they do that is that they need in-game rewards. They need to be able to incentivize the community to do kind of specific actions there. So, um, so say like, say you're looking at a project and 60% of the total tokens are allocated to the next five years um, of in-game incentives. And that means those tokens won't be on the market for the next five years. It will slowly be emitted into the market. So um, it's something that's that's become more relevant in the space, um, especially in kind of the GameFi sector. Um, yeah, I really like yeah. that. That's I mean, a good that's... framework for it. Um, and, and yeah, I think I, I agree with you as well. As tokenomics change and the types of things we use tokens for change um paying attention to fdv and you know where is the rest of the supply and what it's designed for you know being reserved for um definitely makes sense on the raising front i guess is the final sort of bit uh, on that a lot of you know there are a lot of stages to projects raising money so we talked about the seed round obviously but recently you know we all heard about icos in 2017 2018 whatever but nowadays that seems to have multiplied into a number of other sort of public facing fundraising mechanisms and they're not mutually exclusive from having like a seed round right you might have something very private you know for private individuals and then something a bit more public facing so i am of course referring to you know i 
and then whatever letter in the alphabet is left and then o <laughs> is the third one right so we have ido ieo ito i'm sure there are a bunch of others um what do these things do uh, are, are they exclusive to you know, you know can you have them alongside a seed round you know who are they made for what what's this sort of public facing um fundraising mechanism and, and why are there so many of them yeah um that's a very, very solid question. Um, I think it, a lot of the, the different letters, right? And IDO is initial DEX offering, IEO, initial exchange offering, ITO, initial token offering, um, et cetera. I've, I think the reason that there's so many of them is because people are still trying to experiment to see what is the best way to actually launch their token into the public market. Um, so for example, like Mango Markets kind of um, led and had a new way of raising capital where they um, they opened a pool for like two to three days and they said, you know, we're selling 5% of our tokens or, or whatever the number was. Um, and if you want to invest, you know, put your money in here. So they gave three days for the market to kind of figure out what the correct price for 5% of it was. So you get an implied market cap from that um and then that was kind of how how they launched their token right they found fair market price everyone kind of got in at the same initial price um and then you let the token trade from there so it the letters are are basically different experiments or different ways to um to let your token be publicly traded uh by the market um and again right like that's that's kind of the key thing that a lot of funds and I mean, research uh, firms have been doing right now is is trying to understand what these different tokenomics look like. I mean, really, the only way to figure out if if um, if one of your uh, different ways of listing the token is good or not is just through experimenting. Um, and again, like I said, you know, Delphi Labs has a really good tokenomics um, research group working on right now. They actually just I think two or three weeks ago, I put out a report on their own way to basically launch your token into the public market. Um, so it's just something that that we're still figuring out, right? Like it's it's really important to be able to have venture money in the space, right? Like it incentivizes new people to try to create new projects that push innovation and let people experiment in crypto. But there's obviously good ways to do it and bad ways to do it where investors are um, overcompensated or undercompensated um, and the public markets either get scammed or they get, you know, super rich and, um, and people are just trying to work out how to balance those two. So the different letters, all the experiments that you see, um, that's, it's kind of people working on that problem right now. You know, what is fair? How can we help everyone win um, and let the best projects win out in the end? Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And as you mentioned earlier, even the traditional markets haven't really figured it out per se. Um, you know, if you look at Robinhood and you know Coinbase is a really good example. It's not like <laughs> it's not like these things go live to the public and then um, you know become stable coins or maintain fair value or whatever. Um, I, I saw Matt Levine post in in one of his newsletters how ipos sort of perform early on and then as on a larger time horizon i mean the, the difference there is really something else so you know i'm glad we we, we do similar experiments in crypto because there doesn't seem to be a right way of doing things but moving away from the yeah. experimental to the fundamental i guess this is the fun one so we've got here as i'm sure you can see on, on your list proof of work and proof of stake 
So the kind of, I, I guess if I had to speculate on what the normie zeitgeist is, or in many cases, people's only exposure, it's that, you know, proof of work is the one that boils the oceans. It's very energy inefficient. And then it's the whatever quote you have of Bitcoin uses as much energy as X, where X is presented as this big, unreasonable energy usage or as something super reasonable and therefore by implication bitcoin is wasteful and then they read about proof of stake where you know it's it's also a um governance consensus mechanism whatever but it's not as wasteful and doesn't boil as as many oceans or hardware intensive or maybe if you're a gamer you know it from the gpu market whatever i think i think that's the base level comparison or, or understanding that exists when it comes to proof of work and proof of stake uh, you don't even necessarily have to compare the two but like what are these things what what do these terms mean yeah um and I, I do want to start off by saying, you know, I could have just kind of Googled the definitions of all of these things and read them off and it sounded like a robot. <laughs> Thank I you for not doing so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it it's kind of much better to, um, I just kind of ripped them off off the, off the top of my head how, you know, I think about them trying to be a little bit more formal with it. But I know if I'm too formal, then everyone will hate the podcast. And if I'm too kind of hand wavy, then I'm going to get absolutely shredded on Twitter. So try to find a middle ground. Um, but yeah, for proof of work, kind of the short there, it's the mining algorithm that's made famous by Bitcoin, you know, invented by Satoshi, uh, in general, it's trades, it's very energy intensive. Um, it tends to be slower, but it's safe and secure. Um, and that's why people love it. Um, proof of stake is a newer mining algorithm that's basically like proof of work, but, um, the validators are rewarded or create blocks in a proportion to how many tokens they have staked. So the thought process with proof of stake is that people who hold more of the governance token. Um, so for example, like Algorand is classic, just pure proof of stake protocol. If you hold a bunch of Algorand, you're incentivized to keep the network safe and secure. Otherwise you have a lot of personal loss there. So the more pe there are people who hold more tokens have more skin in the game, they'll probably protect the network better. Um, so that's what proof of stake is kind of hoping to do. So on paper, right? Like it's supposed to be um, faster, safer, less energy intensive. Um, but again, people kind of take that as a religious debate. So I won't, I won't step on too much there. <laughs> It it does kind of sound Ponzi like, right? <laughs> I mean, when you when you yep. say it like that, the more you have, the more you get. It always does sound a little bit Ponzi like. Why do you think proof of work coins have like basically died outside of really niche new coins? But, but even then, I, I think the overwhelming majority now uh, is proof, and that's why most of the non Bitcoin mindshare is towards proof of stake or even slightly new versions, like whatever Solana uses, not even going to try to attempt to define that. Uh, but do, do you really think, is, is it just the energy debate? Is it a natural, uh, people are going to hate this, but is it the quote unquote natural, what's perceived to be technological progression from proof of work to proof of stake? Because the market seems to be very much in one mind about uh, what mechanism to use. And, and it seems pretty one-sided outside of Bitcoin. Uh, do, do you have any, you know, back of the napkin reasoning f for that transitional preference? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it's a dance between everything you just mentioned. Um, so like one, I kind of think about the driving force as the technological innovation, right? Like proof of work is arguably, you know, 
a lot of people would argue like one of the most important um, inventions that we've come up with within the last hundred years or X amount of years, name your favorite. Um, so that like understanding how to have decentralized ledgers is super important. And then a lot of people think, you know, this is the standard. You can't get better than this. Satoshi is a godlike AI. He obviously got it right. Um, and I mean, Bitcoin is the most successful crypto, right? It's the first, it's the biggest, it's you know, the one that has the biggest community, X, Y, Z. So people love proof of work for, for that reason. Um, I think as you start to look at these different mining algorithms and way to secure the network, I'm just over time, right? Like people got in the weeds, they played around with um, blockchain and, and how to make it better. And again, right, like these are kind of all experiments, but a lot of them have have worked really well, right? Like Solana, as that you mentioned, proof of history is, it's actually very similar to proof of work, um, but it's instead of blocks being like 10 minutes about, they're like, I can't remember the metric, like, a millisecond or like 700 milliseconds something something well, two like days that. from time to time right <laughs> yeah yeah de depending if the network is up or not yeah um so so all these people have different ways and i think that just the innovation like you get a lot of smart people working on this problem of how do you keep decentralization um, but then you actually want to use uh, networks that are fast and secure um and are there better ways to do that so i think people experiment with them um and then, and then there's market forces, right? So, um, so proof of work obviously has huge market cap with Bitcoin and Ethereum right now. Um, but you know, there are kind of the success of each of those experiments depends on how the market weights them. Um, so one of the thoughts for Solana, right? Like people get kind of mad at Solana, um, not to pick on Solana, but just because they have. Um, it's pretty expensive to run a node, so they get um, upset that they think the the mining um, or people securing the network won't be that decentralized. Um, but at the same time, right, you go and actually use Solana as a user, and it's it's incredible. Like it happens right away. It's basically free. Um, there's all these cool new projects coming out on it, so users go on and they're like, "Oh, this is great!" So they go and. You know, they're like, I like Solana. I tried using Ethereum. It took all my money and burned it. What is the IP one five five nine? And so they like Solana, and then they go and buy into that, and that helps the market cap out a lot. So I think it's a different, like, it's kind of a balance. It's a dance between what works well on paper, what works well in the market, what will people actually use. Um, ultimately, I do think that there's a place for all of these things, right? Like, there's kind of a spectrum of decentralization that that you need for different things, right? Like if if it's your family's generational wealth, you probably want that as secure as possible. You probably want to keep that in Bitcoin. Um, larger assets that you keep, say, say like if the metaverse happens and, and you have a house and you really care about making sure that that can't be seized, you probably keep that on Ethereum. Um, if you're playing a video game and you want to make sure you're paid out your $15, you know, laser sword, um, Salon is probably fine for that. Um, I yeah, think that's I mean, not that, my experience. My People's generational wealth is being stored on board eight yacht club seed phrases, which they <laughs> give away to anyone <laughs> anyone that asks kindly enough. So you know, that's the real store yep, of value. I, Sorry, I had to put yeah. that in there. You know, 
No, yeah. it's true. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's how the market is waiting them. Um, that's, it's kind of the dance, right? Like you would, or at least I think that people will probably fall into that spectrum, but you know, let's see, let's see where people actually want to keep it and, and what kind of wins out at the end. I agree with you there that I think the more sophisticated as a market participant you get, the more important that distinction gets to you. So like storing wealth or storing like a large part of your portfolio in Bitcoin just makes sense. Um, the smaller kind of your portfolio is, the more kind of returns you want to make, uh, the multipliers you want to have, and then you just store them on <laughs> board out for the Yacht Ape Club thingies. Um, and that's fine as well, right? Uh, something you said is that running a Solana node uh, is expensive. What exactly is a node and how would you describe it? Yeah. Um, well, so node in general, right? A node is a computer that runs a mining algorithm that's connected to the crypto network and secures the crypto network. Um, so, for example, like you need um, or you use different nodes for for each uh, network. So Bitcoin miners, um, that would be an example of a node. Um, Solana has these RPC nodes, which um, they're a lot more expensive to run. Um, so kind of not to dive too far into the difference in the nodes there, but um, kind of people that want to fix scaling in crypto, uh, they have a couple different ways that they think it'll work. Um, the two main ways, at least that the market thinks uh, are the best so far, are basically sharding and um, and proof of history. So Solana um, and not to, I mean, L2s as well. So, so sharding basically, um, if you need to do a bunch of computations, sharding breaks them up into like 100 different pieces and you can just fragment them and kind of do them all in parallel and then connect them back at the end. And that basically works out. Um, so that's what ETH2 is going to do. Um, Near is kind of the classic one that's doing it right now uh, that people are excited about. So basically you take this large stream, you break it up into smaller bite-sized pieces, do them all at the same time and go from there. Um, Solana is more kind of trying to be a, a brute force computation. So instead of breaking it up into bite-sized pieces, Solana does the whole thing and they try to do it super fast. So in order to do that, you need basically like supercomputers um, to be able to process all of these transactions and keep it fast. And if you can do it well, there's a lot of really good traits that come about. So you don't need to break up all of the chain um, and do them in parallel. You can have everything time synced very well. Um, that would be like, so a lot of the reason gaming is on Solana is because all of the time sync would work out very well. Um, if you're playing against people in different countries and you're on a different chain, like there, it just is a lot easier to do it all on one really smart, really fast chain. Um, but in order to do that, like I said, you need the supercomputers and those are pretty expensive. Um, so I think like a typical one would be like $10,000 if you wanted to run a validator for Solana, um, which people don't like. That prices a lot of people out of the network. But again, it's kind of, um, 
it's kind of a, a necessary evil as of right now to make sure that you can keep this super fast chain and be able to kind of reap the rewards that come about from having one ledger that all of the validators are seeing at a time. Um, so those, that's, I kind of answered your node question there, kind of talked about why you need different ones for different chains, but. No, for sure. Um, is yeah. the implicit harm that people are seeing when you're priced out from uh, running a node is that de decentralization is harmed? You know, if, if there's like a 10K entry point, then it's going to be incumbents on the network and big, bigger and fewer players who can uh, afford to run them. Is, is that sort of how the argument flows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Um, you we mentioned scaling. I'm jumping a little bit, but we did mention scaling. And this is what happens like every time crypto gets hot, people try to use crypto uh, and it, it doesn't work or at the very least it becomes very expensive and people who get get like a bit of ETH sent to them to like ape into an NFT can't do it because the gas is too high, etc. And, and we always have some version uh, of the scaling debate, it feels like, going on in crypto. I know you feel very strongly about this as well, Don, so I'm sure you've got something to say. Uh, but in short, when we when we talk about scaling and different solutions, uh, you know, what what does that term mean? What are we trying to fix or balance or achieve? Yeah, so, so scaling is basically increasing um, the amount of transactions per second that you can get on the blockchain. Um, I mean, that like full stop, that's scaling. Uh, and the goal is to do it in a way that is cheap and fast and effective so that everyone can actually use this stuff. Um, SPF is kind of famous for saying we're not even close to being where we need to be. Um, like the best thing we have right now is Solana and they're at 50,000 transactions per second and we need millions if we want crypto to kind of turn into this thing that we think it can be. Um, so yeah, that's scaling. The big debate, what's the best way to do it? Uh, how does it look in the future? Um, but that's that's kind of the overarching uh, way people in crypto are looking at scaling. One, one way that uh, scaling is discussed is by taking... Uh, layer one stuff onto layer two. Do you want to describe those points and then describe how that would help? Yeah. So uh, layer two is kind of how Ethereum has been scaling right now. Um, as they get closer, hopefully to the merge, they'll also <laughs> transition to proof of stake, which should help out scaling a ton. I hope my grandchildren um, see and... it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, that it's it's a real thing that. You know, I hope like that would be incredible, right? If we could have, if Ethereum scaling works out, um, proof of stake works perfectly. And then you have rollups um, and L2s kind of on top of it. You probably could have one chain that can handle everything we need um, or, or at least close to it, some form of that. So um, yeah, L2s right now, uh, basically Ethereum main chain is extremely expensive to transact on. Um, and a little bit slower than most people would like. So L2s are basically side chains that run in parallel. So you bridge your assets over to a side chain, do a bunch of transactions on that, um, and then you can bridge it back to the main chain. So say I knew that um, Cred and I were going to have a ton of transactions between each other and we're going to be trading a bunch of stuff um, and sending each other, paying for each other's dinners and stuff like that. Um, I don't need to spend, I don't need all of that recorded on the main chain, right? It's just Cred and I have our initial balances. We go into this side chain, do everything we need to do um, that we don't need to necessarily be 
on Ethereum's main chain. Um, so we have, you know, 50 transactions between the two of us on the side chain, fine. And then we come back to Ethereum's main chain. So the only thing that the main chain has is our starting balances and our final balances and kind of all of the other in-between things that don't matter as much um, are on the L2. That's pretty clear. Don, do you have any spicy stuff? You know, you always feel strongly about scaling and complain that crypto breaks <laughs> and doesn't work as soon as it's gone up. Are you, are you no pun intended, uh, but are you optimistic about this um, layer two? I mean, it's at least a start, right? It's something that, because the history, basically, my history with scaling is I was closely tracking how blockchains were doing in, in 17, early 17, going into 18, right? And the more people use them, uh, the less trustworthy. And I mean, in general, like you had to pay so much fees that just wasn't worth it, right? And what I realized was that the space was, very, very far from mass adoption because, I mean, no one could use it. The moment not even 1% of the world population started using it, and this is like a vast, vast overestimation, uh, everything broke. Bitcoin was unusable. ETH was unusable. Nowadays, it's a little bit different as in, but we still have the same problem with ETH um, as the layer one kind of. It's not really something that normal people can use because you still pay a lot of transaction fees, but there's at least something for people that actually know what they're doing to kind of avoid those. I don't really think it's very, very feasible for a blockchain beginner to bridge to other chains and do their business there just because it's too complicated still. So that's my my issue with it right now. But if that gets if that gets easier for, for the layperson, I mean, maybe we have a chance to kind of get more people into crypto right now i'm not as optimistic as most but there's at least a light at the end of the tunnel that i didn't see in 17 you'll probably be done via apps that we don't even recognize it's going on you know once, yeah. once it gets done properly uh, i think that's what it'll look like but the tldr is basically the, the main chain the layer one because it strives to you know prioritizes decentralization to, to a large extent uh it's expensive to use and slower etc uh, and layer twos exist to quote unquote fix that uh you know lazily i'm going to define that via innovation so that you can have other transactions perhaps less important ones take place on the layer two which is built for higher throughput more scaling etc and then they kind of go back to the layer one to be settled have i completely butchered that or is that more or less kind of correct god yeah i think that's that's dead on okay and um, i should also mention for our audience that like we we said we say layer one, layer two, but that layer two proposal obviously hasn't been accepted by everyone in the market, uh, which is why we've seen the kind of Sol, Luna, AVAX, layer one trade and Ethereum killers, Ethereum alternatives come about. Uh, and the implicit notion there is that, you know, th there's no point or, or it's in some way less attractive. Well, uh, as in, you know, the layer, the layer one won't scale, the layer two bridge or, or transfer is in some way inferior and therefore the way you actually achieve scaling is by doing it on the layer one uh, and not on the layer two so that's kind of what you know what the market's been wrestling with for for much of this year um the next one is fun we've got a couple of uh acronyms which are evm and mev uh <laughs> where, where do you want to take those i know they're quite different obviously but yeah uh definitely a little bit more on the technical side 
um, of crypto. So again, we'll try to just keep it high level. I know that's kind of the point of of this. Um, But yeah, EVM stands for Ethereum Virtual Machine. Um, And it's kind of like the software platform that devs will use um, to create dApps on or decentralized applications on Ethereum. Um, So basically, if something is EVM compatible, that means that you can use it from Ethereum or bridge directly to Ethereum. Um, and, it, and it's part of the, the ETH ecosystem. Um, MEV stands for mono, minor extractable value. Um, that's, it's basically like a, a minor trick that has caught on a lot in the last um, year or even a little bit more now. Um, it's basically money that the miners can make by reordering or inserting um, blocks. Uh, usually it's used kind of in reference to ETH. Um, some of the other chains don't have the problem as much just because their um, their mining algorithm works differently. But basically the thought process for MEV uh, or a classic example is a sandwich attack. Um, so people see a big trade coming in. Um, Because you can see the transaction before it's actually recorded on the blockchain. So people see that huge transaction. They say, you know, you know, a buy that big is going to increase price by 10%, say. So they go in, uh, pay a bunch of gas to front run the trade. So they buy the asset before the big trade comes in. They ride that 10% up and then they sell right after. So MEV is basically the the max amount. the max amount of dollars that you can extract by kind of looking for trades like that um, would just be one example, but there's also other ways to do it as well. See, Don, I told you I had nothing to do with fighting outside of Subway and just didn't listen to me. Ho- hopefully now that we've got some expertise, <laughs> that much is obvious. Um, let, let, let's speed run to some extent. You know, we're conscious conscious of your time, of course. Uh, we're getting to the, 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 fun, the fun stuff. Obviously, you have to do the fundamentals first for it to make some sort of sense, having a frame of reference. But we've got this clumsily titled as blockchain use cases. Uh, which used to be, which used to be a kind of oxymoron back in the day. Quite different now. Um, you you can speed through these as quickly or as, or as slowly as you'd like. Uh, but you know we've got the first couple which are related. Um, is well smart contracts, which is the bedrock for a lot of this. And then we dump you know jump into the specific derivatives of that, like MetaMask and what what's DAP, DeFi, etc. But in, in terms of setting the scene, a lot of this is. You know, even just working with ETH is interacting with smart contracts. So, I mean, what is a smart contract? Yeah, um, and I'll be conscious of the speed round here. I should be a little bit more fun to listen to too if you hit on a bunch <laughs> sure, of terms sure. up, uh, quickly. So, smart contract—it's um, basically a program that's stored on blockchain um, and it executes a given operation. So, the classic example that anyone who kind of taught themselves blockchain. Uh, by watching YouTube videos is a vending machine, right? Um, that's an easy program. If I put in $2, I get to pick, you know, what type of soda I want. A smart contract is basically that on blockchain that um, will can allow you to basically use it in smart ways um, and people stack them. Dev stack a lot of them now, make it very complex, but but it basically allows you to be able to do, you know, cool transactions and operations on the blockchain. There you go. Um, the way a lot of people interface with smart contracts, obviously not directly, uh, but via, I mean, especially with NFT season and OpenSea going nuts, is MetaMask. 
And apart from giving scammers seed phrases via extremely easy social engineering, I mean, what what is MetaMask used for? And, you know, how does it work even? Yeah, um, MetaMask is basically a place where you store all of your wallets that uh, started off pretty much as Ethereum, but now it's basically all EVM compatible chains, um, or most, I should say. Um, Yeah, it's basically the the user interface for how people actually send money on Ethereum and, and interact with the chain. And send seed phrases as well. Uh, that joke's never going to get old. It'll be like 2030. I'm still making jokes about Bored Ape Yacht Club. Uh, DAP. And we've got that. We've got DeFi next to it. And I'm sure those are a little bit related. Uh, but, you know, once you actually you know, start using these things, for, for, for DAP and DeFi, pe- people wondering on, on that side of crypto, what do these terms mean? Yeah. DAP, um, decentralized application, pretty much apps or projects that you can use on the blockchain. Um, DeFi, decentralized finance, um, basically banking in a decentralized way on the blockchain. Um, for example, borrowing, lending, market making on chain, um, pretty much the stuff that we use institutional or institutions and banks to do. Um, DeFi is trying to do it in a permissionless way that we can all participate in. Cool. I'm going to group, group these two together, even though they're not in the form they're in is DEX plus AMM. Because again, with Uniswap and DeFi actually having use cases, apart from, you know, aside from what, what we're used to, um, those two seem quite reasonable to clump together. Uh, and it's like a new way of trading, and it's very liquid. It's not some, you know, uh, crypto bridge edge use case. Th- these things have a lot of depth, a lot of volume. So, so Dex plus AMM. What 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 does that mean? Yeah, uh, Dex stands for decentralized exchange. Um, so the classic pairing for that is SEX, C-E-X, a centralized exchange. Um, that's what more people are probably familiar with, Coinbase, FTX. That's a place where you can go to buy and sell different cryptos, right? So a decentralized exchange is basically an exchange programmed um, onto the blockchain that you can do the same, you know, buy and sell different cryptos, trade. Um, but there's no centralized entity that governs it. Uh, and the main innovation that kind of allows DEXs to work is an AMM, um, stands for Automated Market Maker. Um, the kind of hard to be brief on them, <laughs> um, but, but basically the, the classical um, way to look at it is um, like a pooling of funds that people deposit um, into the AMM that allow you to actually, you know, make markets and let people trade and have liquidity on demand. Um, so they use, uh, or most of them actually, we've seen some innovation here too for concentrated liquidity, um, but those are the exception to the rule. The rule would be um, that AMMs use an X times Y equal K algorithm on the back end. Um, so basically, you know how much liquidity and how much slippage you'll have for a given trade based on how many funds are pooled um, into this AMM. Um, so the a- so I take a step back, the high level, the AMM is kind of like the engine in the background that allows the DEX to run. And a DEX is a place where you can trade all of your cryptos um, back and forth. Uh, that doesn't require, usually, hopefully, doesn't require <laughs> KYC 
um, or a centralized entity to kind of make the trades for you. That's that's one of those coming in 2022 things. Um, <laughs> if we jump <laughs> to DeFi not. Summer we'll back in the day, um, these two go together quite nicely. Uh, governance token, I mean, still relevant, obviously, and yield farming. It seems like those two are synonymous in, in DeFi. What, what do they actually mean? Yeah, um, governance token, um, basically a token that gives its holder uh, the right to vote on protocol direction. Um, Uniswap is kind of a, a famous example of this. Um, Uniswap is um, a DEX on Ethereum, kind of, you know, the first one made famous, kind of allowed DeFi to come about and thrive. Um, but they needed a token to get people interested, invested in the protocol and its success. Um, and basically the utility of the token is that you have governance, you have voting power in what the protocol will actually do in the future. Um, and that's been adopted by a lot of cryptos now. So, um, uh, people will joke about a governance token kind of just being like, well, why do you need a token? Um, that's an easy answer is, well, it's a governance token. You know, we can let other people decide where the protocol goes. Um, but yeah, governance token, basically a token for decentralized application and its utility is to um, allow the holders of the token to vote on um, different aspects of the protocol. Um, yield farming, kind of the short and quick of it, it's lending and staking of your coins. Um, and that lets kind of the people who are lending and staking get rewards from transaction fees or interest. So if you ever hear people referencing like high APYs um, or kind of risky farms, they're talking about yield farming and they're talking about the percent gains that, that they're getting from the um, rewards for whatever they happen to be yield farming. That was good. Um, that's pretty clear. Look, we're going to take a swing at what I think are the big four. And I know people will think we should have done these at the beginning, but just like any other meal or experience, you have to build up to it and earn it and get the reward at the end, <laughs> right? So the big four I'm thinking of for the benefit of our audience are NFTs, DAOs, Web3, and Metaverse. I could just crop this bit of the podcast of me saying those four words and probably raise like a 500 million fund like by <laughs> tomorrow, the way things are at the moment. But, but if we try to take a sort of reasonable approach to those, we can, we can, we can do them in that order. NFT, DAO, Web3, Metaverse. Um, NFTs especially, you know, the amount of public uh, attention they've garnered, primarily negative, and, you know, it's very topical and popular now to just like dunk on nfts even if you don't know what they are or how crypto works it, it, you know the amount of hatred that i've seen for them come from the public sphere is is pretty un, unprecedented at least in my experience so clearly there are some misunderstandings and some of the use cases that people associate with nfts which is the bored apes giving their seed phrases away uh, perhaps that's only the, the surface <laughs> layer of where we could end up so, so i mean for you i mean what does the acronym mean obviously but also what could it mean in terms of use cases? Yeah, um, and I'll kind of run through those four in that order, like you said. Um, and yes, I completely agree. If you just crop that six seconds from the <laughs> podcast, you saying those terms and put that as the trailer, I'm sure it'll increase views by 5x. Oh, for sure. Um, but yeah, NFT, it stands for non-fungible token. Um, it's basically the, the underlying tech that backs virtual assets. So like... Uh, it's kind of synonymous with crypto art right now, um, which again, I'm not saying that's its best use case. I'm just saying that's what people think of when they hear NFT. Um, 
So it gets a lot of hate and I can touch on that quickly. I Dude. think there, there are a few different reasons. Um, one, people think all the minting of NFTs and creating them is absolutely ruining the environment. Um, there's actually a hearing going on uh, in about 30 minutes that is going to touch on the uh, environmental impact of crypto um, and NFTs, but people hate it. They think it's destroying the environment. Um, and that's from the outside, from the insiders um, or people who are kind of crypto native been in the space for a long time. They don't like NFTs because crypto is supposed to be this glorious tech innovation. That's going to save us from totalitarian governments and all this stuff. And most of the things that is hitting the mainstream from crypto are pictures of, you know, monkeys or whatever, <laughs> you know, cats, pick your favorite animal. Um, and it's just people buying and selling them for absolutely ridiculous prices. Um, I mean, they, I think as we go on, we're actually going to see a lot of innovation in the NFT space. Um, I think right now we're in like the first inning of NFTs where people just realize that they exist and what you can do with them and creating art and profile pictures, which is basically paying to be in a community and show off that you're in the community um, are kind of the first use cases that make sense to everyone. Um, I think gaming and the metaverse, which I'll touch on in a sec, are kind of going to be the next frontiers for NFTs where you start to get utility NFTs and things that actually um, that will make a little bit more sense and, and put the crypto native people at ease a little bit more, I hope. Um, yeah, basically, there's there's been an extreme craze around them. Um, I think it's definitely net positive for crypto. You know, a ton of more people hear about it now. Um, they get interested in it. Like, that's how I would say 80% of my friends that are interested in crypto honestly got in because of NFTs. And then over half of them now have learned about DeFi and kind of gone to to do on-chain transactions and stuff like that. So I think it brings a lot of people in. Um, but that that's kind of the the overview for NFTs. It's the gateway drug to like crypto. Right yeah, exactly. Right. I honestly think yeah. it's basically replaced the Doge of its of its time, right? So like we used to have Doge and that kind of stuff, and that was how people got in. Now it's profile pictures and like apes and whatever, which I think is actually might actually be an upgrade, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, yeah. well, Facebook announced, um, or actually, I don't know if it was an official announcement, but they're going to start integrating NFTs to uh, Facebook and Instagram, so. Um, verified NFT holders, kind of like what Twitter is doing, but so that you can have, you can display your NFT um, and show it off there. But I mean, it's definitely made a wave. Everyone talks about sure. it. And the hardest thing about crypto is getting people interested in talking about it. So if that's what gets them in the door, then, then great. Um, but again, we said we were going to be super quick and that was a super long minute no, answer. No, no, this so. is good. I mean, if anywhere we're going to spend time, you know, if you've got stuff to say on these, these are probably, you know, the, the big four slash five. So, you know, as much, as much depth as you'd like. Uh, and then, you know, NFTs sure. have become synonymous to some extent. And you mentioned one of the future potential use cases is in the metaverse. Um, and that's probably where digital ownership probably finds its resting place or, or kind of the most logical conclusion of where these 
NFTs may exist. And, you know, Facebook rebranded to Meta and people kind of lost their minds and an analogies are made between the Metaverse and the Matrix, except in, in, in the Matrix, at least we fought and lo lost the war to the machines, whereas in the Metaverse, you kind of voluntarily <laughs> plug in Zuckerberg to the back of your head and there you go. Uh, I, I know there isn't like a strict definition and maybe we, some of the best or clearest Metaverse use cases aren't even defined yet, but like, what does this term even, you know, where, where do you start with this term? Yeah. Um... Meta and just to hit on two NFT examples very quickly that will sure. lead into metaverse um, that I think we'll start to see there is like a decentralized identity uh, that will happen that you'll need to kind of in the crypto metaverse um, will likely be an NFT and then like real world assets that the data will be stored on chain. So think of like real estate, like a house deed. Um, a lot of paperwork, physical things that you need to store, um, but you need to make sure that they're safe. Um, something like that could be stored as an NFT and kept on on chain. Um, so there, there are utility use cases coming down the line uh, that just are not as popular yet. Um, that kind of leads into the metaverse. Definitely been a hot topic of conversation especially since zuckerberg came out super in favor of it and changed facebook's name to meta um i kind of have uh i've i've been studying it for a while now i honestly got interested in it about a year ago from this guy matthew ball who writes about it a lot um so i seeing the public kind of come in and fit it into their own buckets has been interesting um so my take on uh, the metaverse is kind of as it's like basically your your online life um, and it's going to become much more immersive in the coming future as your banking moves online with DeFi. Um, the main thing Zuckerberg's targeting is your work moving online. So instead of having six monitors set up, um, you can put on your VR headset and then you can you know, once you're in virtual reality, you can have a hundred monitors if you want. You probably won't even use a monitor. You'll have holograms sitting in the air. Uh, you can basically play God mode with your workspace setup um, and teleport to meetings and stuff like that. So um, your banking is online, your work is online. Um, Metaverse concerts would be, you know, Travis Scott can have a concert where maybe not Travis Scott. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying is, is Travis Scott can have a concert and it's guaranteed no one's going to get hurt because you're, you're not actually. <laughs> yeah, there. more people are going to survive the metaverse concert than, than the real one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so it's, it's, and then, you know, like when you hang out with your friends, you know, say you want to hang out with your friend who's in California before, take a plane out, all that stuff. Now snap your fingers and you can go hang out. Um, in a virtual world. So um, it's it's kind of more of a spectrum, like as all of these things become more mainstream and people have more significant portions of their life online, um, the metaverse kind of emerges as, as your online life. Um, very likely has augmented reality and virtual reality tied into it. Um, but it's also kind of a sliding spectrum. Like I would argue like there's not going to be a point where we're like, oh, okay, the metaverse is here, right? Like it kind of slowly emerges over time. I would say now we're at like maybe 10%. Like we're already in it, right? Like I'm sitting in front of uh, two computer monitors and my laptop open. Um, like I have kind of digital feeds, like forums, Twitter, um, different ways to talk to people online. 
like it's a it's kind of like the beta version of the metaverse and then as these things get more and more immersive um it kind of emerges from there um so that that's my take that's what i think of like that's how i kind of see the metaverse quote unquote playing out um i would say the the public understanding of metaverse is basically a vr land where you hang out with your friends um and it's not the metaverse like your online like this encompassing thing it's different metaverses so i think most people think of it as like an open world video game pretty much so like call of duty you'll have all your stuff there and you can run around um, or like sim city would be a better example you kind of just have like a life there and then that's one metaverse and then you have your workspace and that's another metaverse um i think they're using the word wrong there but it also could be something where if enough people say it over time that actually becomes a definition so so we'll wait and see on that um i like yeah that. that's how i yeah that it's i mean it's new and people we don't really understand it because it relies on a lot of tech that isn't even invented yet um how it kind of pertains to crypto like i'm i'm guessing anyone listening to this uh, if you sat through all the terms before you're definitely somewhat interested in crypto um the reason that it's sparked so much interest in crypto um one once zuck announced that he's trying to do it you you kind of have two major scenarios playing out um where you either have a centralized metaverse which would kind of be facebook dominating the whole thing or a decentralized metaverse um, where everyone kind of establishes the truth for themselves. Um, and there are oracles that, that can prove that something is true. Um, kind of the, the thing that people get scared of for Zuck's metaverse. So if you see a bunch of people tweeting about why it's so bad and all this stuff is basically like, if you think about, you know, what Facebook and Instagram, have done so far right like they basically only have your visual sense and it's on this tiny little phone in front of you and like they it's already extremely polarizing and they have so much power over society right now and they have one sense of yours um if it goes from a little screen in front of you to your entire world um there is a lot more power in that and you might see something um, I think this is a very doomer way to look at it, but like how you mentioned, Craig, kind of the the matrix where we all just you know plug in and say, "Okay, Zuck, here's my brain." Um, that's what that's what people are worried about. So, if the tech is kind of inevitable and we're going to move towards that, just because game theory and capitalism work together to create the metaverse, um, it's kind of much better for the individual if we create it with crypto and it in a decentralized way than if it's top down from a centralized company like Facebook um, or I guess meta now. Yeah. Meta. No, I think that's really, really coherent. And I, I also enjoy thinking about it in terms of people becoming digitally native from like a very young age and associate a lot of their positive experiences and their social circles and their network and the things they own are increasingly digital. So you'd expect that to, spurn development and allow for some sort of more coherent and cohesive kind of way of existing online uh, beyond all this kind of fragmentation which makes a lot of sense uh, obviously you know you'll get the dystopian capitalism attempt at it and then we'll see where that ends up but i think the basic premise which is what you started with especially that a lot of the stuff we do is online 
uh, and that's going to change how we interface with those regular activities and a place to maybe do it all. I, th I think that's not too scary, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think yeah, cool. it's 100%. On yeah, point. well, we I think we had a good swing at that. Definitely getting the fundraising round uh, after after that. <laughs> uh, Web3 is another one, which is, you know, very broad term. And you have, especially I think what unites Metaverse and Web3 specifically is you have people who are very much outside of crypto for whom these are big talking points and they suddenly become interested. Now, my favorite take on, one of my favorite takes on Web3 is that we're, again, just going to onboard people into crypto and shitcoins, but just calling it something else. Now, the audience knows I love the super hyper cynical takes. Uh, obviously, that's not the whole thing in its entirety. But, you know, if you had to add some flesh to Web3, what, what does, how does it work? Yeah, um, again, Web3, super hot buzzword, uh, kind of the fits into the funny quote, I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, I would say Web3, like the short and sweet of it, it's or the way people talk about it and look at it is it's a new decentralized internet where you actually own your online assets and you own your data instead of big, big tech companies. Um, that's really what people think of when they think of Web3. So Web3 application, right, would be something that um, allows you to put your NFT lines, your profile picture, have your online baking, um, play to earn video games, like stuff like that is all kind of plugged into Web3. Um, but it's basically a decentralized internet that um, that you own your assets, you own your data, and you hide that from big tech companies and they kind of lose that power over you that like, gives people that eerie feeling um, that they're playing in someone else's arena. We seem quite far away from, you know, sort of actionable either apps or ideas or implementations. Uh, am I right? Because, you know, Metaverse, you can start to see some evidence of it. DeFi especially, people do a lot of like banking, self-repaying loans, etc. If I had to just, you know, eye test says that, the, the web three is maybe the most ambitious, but also the more distant. Is that more or less how you see it at the moment in terms of if there's a race of how close are we getting to completion of these things or at least practical versions? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's spot on. Um, and again, I don't think it's going to be something where it's like now web three is here and you switch your internet browser and it's web three. <laughs> um, I think it, it'll, it'll come kind of come across um, over time. Um, I also think it's at this, this funny inflection point. It's just an analogy I thought of, the other day that could help some people see it um it's kind of like when electric cars were being used in like the early 2000s um and people were like uh me like the idea is probably there but the tech was a lot harder to engineer with um and so people like the idea but the actual applications the cars that you could buy and use were pretty terrible um and we're kind of waiting for this tesla moment right where someone can come in and you know, they can use the clunky, like the harder tech uh, and innovate on it and make it kind of this sexy streamlined application where all the crypto is abstracted away. And it's like uh, even better than kind of the Web2 apps we have right now. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I was thinking about it. Yeah, it needs to be better, doesn't it? It needs to be better. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's something we've been struggling with, with in crypto for so long, right? It's we all understand that it's a pretty neat way of doing things, but as long as it's worse than the counterparty or like the, the opposite side, the, 
decentralized side of things. It just doesn't really make much sense to use it um, other than just betting on that Tesla moment, as you said. Um, something that's been in the in the media a lot for like <laughs> bad reasons recently has been uh, the DAOs. Um, we've seen a massive, massive crash on that front in the last week or two. Um, what is a DAO and how does it work? Yeah, um, a DAO, uh, first off, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Um, again, kind of the, the umbrella view, it's a group of people working together for a common goal. Um, they sometimes have a token. Um, but it's basically a way for people to organize. Um, and it's it's similar to like almost a company. It's like if you merge a company and a community, uh, then you get like a DAO. Um, and they do different things, right? Like there's Pleaser DAO where they kind of pool all their funds together and they went out and bought the Wu-Tang albums. So now they own that. Um, there was Constitution DAO. So people, again, pooling their money together to try to buy the Constitution. Um, and then there's DAOs with tokens, right? So like the Curve Wars, for example, going on right now in DeFi. Um, like it makes sense to buy up a lot of a given token because you get benefits from there. So a DAO will launch a token, have people invest in it, and then use that money to go and buy more of the token that you want. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm in a few DAOs, especially kind of from the CMS side, like from investing in projects that have just gone and launched DAOs. Uh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm hyper bullish on them. Um, just cause like it's, it's one of those things that seems really good on paper and then you get in there and you're like, maybe there is a reason companies are structured a certain way, <laughs> like 150 people all yelling at each other on discord. It's kind of hard to organize. Um, so I don't know. I, again, I think, you know, really cool idea. Um, and certain use cases, it, it can obviously be successful, but kind of experimenting and figuring out what those are will be important in the future. Yeah, listen, Don, it's either an unregistered company slash fundraising <laughs> group entity or it's a paid group of sorts. There you go. No, I'm sure this will age poorly exactly. and some awesome stuff will happen. And it's nice that it's penetrating the, the, the mainstream, you know, usually for bad reasons. But hey, at least it's there. No such thing as bad publicity for crypto, right? The last one, which I know you're passionate about specifically, so I'd love to hear from you about this, uh, is GameFi right? Now, again, I will offer, as I always do, the hyper cynical asshole version, which is that GameFi is just, well, first of all, yield farming with extra steps. Uh, and second of all, I guess this is more of a question than a comment, really, but a lot of these games suck. And they're really bad compared to, you know, the, the stuff we're used to and the current standard of gaming. So do we have to get around that for GameFi to do well? And also, yeah, just as a hark back to the first point, is it just glorified uh, yield farming in its in its current form? Yeah, um, really good question. And, and this is probably the area where I have the most specific knowledge. I'm Which is why we've I've kept been... it to the end, obviously, right, Don? <laughs> the amazing hosts that we are. Sorry, go on. Take as much time <laughs> as you like. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, GameFi or, or play-to-earn gaming, um, it... Basically, uh, in its purest form is if you take video games um, and all of the rewards and um, achievements you get, um, basically, you get to own those. Um, so for like an easy example to understand, 
um, say you're playing Call of Duty and you reach level 34 or something and, and you unlock uh, a new gun, um, but you don't really like the gun, you can actually take it because you own it now, go on to a marketplace and sell it to someone else who does like it for say like 50 bucks, right? So you're playing the game, you enjoy it, um, you get these achievements and unlocks and you actually own the assets and there's a marketplace for them. So as you get better, as you play the game more, you actually make money, um, oftentimes in the form of NFTs, sometimes in the form of the in-game currency. Um, so it's this really cool idea of like all the video games that we've been playing, you basically are just buying into whatever the centralized entity is. Um, so like for Fortnite, right? Like you buy skins from them and that's kind of the end of the story. You pay 20 bucks and now you get to look like John Wick um, and that's all good. But I think if, if you get to own your own assets in game and go and sell them and actually you, you get more skin in the game, um, I think it makes it way more fun. I think it's going to bring video games to kind of a whole new level um, where you see even more adoption than we've seen so far. Um, and there's a lot of really cool things you can do with it, right? Like I, um, when we were talking about um, GameFi in, internally a couple of weeks ago at CMS, um, and I was like, well, well, someone was trying to, or kind of playing the cynic. And I was like, well, imagine the entertainment value, right? If your favorite gamers, uh, so say like TSM, is streaming in an online play to earn game, and it's a space battle and there's a million dollars of nfts on the line and they're going against the other top clan like pe people go nuts over kind of boxing fights where there are huge amounts of money on the line um like if it's people can do it and stream it and watch it like you get all your fans to engage and then they want to play and build up their community like you almost get the feeling of like getting in early to crypto where you have like that i want to you know, create wealth. And at the same time, it's super fun and all of your friends are doing it too. So that's kind of like the hyper bullish visionary look at it. Um, they're obviously the, the cynical take kind of what a lot of people have been kind of vocal about on crypto Twitter is that basically the argument is we're not there yet. <laughs> um, it, it's like the games that are at right now are really bad. And like you said, it's like yield farming, except you have to do extra steps and go manually do all this stuff. And it kind of sucks, um, which is fair, right? Uh, I think kind of the beacon of hope that you can get at where we're actually at now versus where we could get in the future um, is I, I saw a, a stat actually that Axie Infinity, um, they were accounting for over, so Axie Infinity, for those who don't know, it's kind of like the zero to one moment for play to earn gaming and crypto. Um, they were kind of the first people to get mass adoption or really the first people to do play to the play to earn model. Um, and they got mass adoption in the Philippines um, and we're putting up huge numbers. I think their market cap spiked over like 30 billion or something like that. Um, but one of the metrics was that like over 50% of active wallets like daily active wallets were being used on axie infinity um and again someone please find the source i don't want to go on record saying that and then 
um, it's not true, but I did read that that over 50% of the active wallets were being used for Axie Infinity. Um, and I think that's the metric that we almost take, we don't take for granted in crypto, but we kind of underplay its value. Like, like you were saying earlier, Don, like the NFTs are like the gateway drug for crypto. I think if you mix NFTs and you have this play to earn gaming model, the, and then you get a game like Axie Infinity, again, if you go and play it, it kind of is like glorified yield farming. If you get games that are actually super fun um, and you mix in the NFT player and component to it, like I think that that's the next biggest onboarding step for all of crypto. And look at the, the user base, right? Like who plays video games? Um, generally, it's people who are age like 12 to 23-ish or is kind of like the biggest base of video game players. And it goes much younger and much older. Um, but like those are also the next wave of people who likely adopt crypto um so it again i don't i know we're trying to be a little bit shorter on some of these pieces um but i think getting to own your in-game assets for video games building that into actual games that people like and enjoy and play one because the game component itself is fun and then they're also incentivized to play it and can like earn a wage off of it um, or at least just have fun with their friends um, I think that that's going to be like one of the biggest innovations or kind of one of the biggest, um, societal shifts that we'll see kind of in the next five years, um, assuming it actually works and takes off. Just as the final point, you know, if, if we had the zero to one moment with Axie Infinity, if we think of a kind of a one to two moment, uh, or, or this idea coming to fruition and, you know, taking grip, etc. Do you think that's more like, in terms of order of operations, I suppose, is that more likely in your mind to happen via some AAA big game studio deciding to experiment with either NFTs or a non-closed loop economy and all of these concepts? Or does it come from a crypto native developer doing like a big raise and then the game is actually so good that even the, you know, incumbent gamers can't ignore it and, and buy into uh, GameFi in that way because at the moment like if you look at ubisoft tried to launch like a very completely basic nft premise and they got blown up uh, and you know for gamers who are understandably you know uh against any sort of what looks even things that are remotely resembling financialization of their game they're against it given the whole loot box microtransaction culture etc that i'm sure people are aware with uh, aware of rather so in terms of how these ideas hitting the forefront do you think it starts with crypto and then hits mainstream or does mainstream does a mainstream company decide to take the plunge and then um you, you got a proof of product at least that way where, where, where does it come from yeah um i mean I think whichever one, it, like it definitely comes from one of those two paths, right? Yeah. And it's either going to play out in kind of the blockbuster Netflix approach <laughs> where block, where blockbuster was like, you know, we don't need this new innovative tech. You guys are going to fail and die on the vine. Um, and then obviously everyone knows the story. Netflix ate their lunch and blockbuster kind of got overturned. So that scenario would be one of the gaming companies that kind of raising money now getting traction innovate, grow, do really well, and kind of gain mass market share there. Um, the other way it could play out is kind of the Facebook, Instagram dynamic. Um, probably less talked about because it's, it's harder to see things that didn't actually happen. Um, but basically, Instagram was getting so popular so quick and eating market share from, 
from Facebook um, and Facebook was innovative and they were like, no, uh, we're actually, in this case, they bought um, Instagram for a billion dollars. Um, and then Facebook became so much bigger and more powerful from that. Um, so that, that scenario would be, I mean, I guess literally it would be uh, one of these gaming companies buying out a play to earn game. Um, that's probably less likely, more likely would be, you know, they realize they need to innovate people like NFTs. Um, and they introduce NFTs into their own game. Um, so those are, those are kind of the two scenarios that we're looking at now. My gut feel um, is that just because there's so much money to be made in NFTs and the way it grabs people's attention, um, I think bigger companies probably are more open to innovating now. Um, so I think probably over the next two years or so, um, hopefully like it could be one year, maybe even less, it could take longer than that. But I think the games that are coming out now and, you know, putting out these huge fundraising rounds, um, a few of them do get very successful and then they get large enough that they're too big to ignore. They're eating market share. Everyone's going on to those Twitch streams instead of league of legends or Fortnite. Um, and one of the gaming companies goes, all right, you know, enough is enough. And then they introduce NFTs onto their platform. Um, so I think it, it's gonna, um, that's kind of bullish, right? Because then, you know, the companies we're at now, it means they pretty much have to like 50 X at least, uh, in order to get to the point where bigger games actually will, or bigger companies feel like it's de-risked enough to adopt NFT gaming. Um, I, I would guess that that's how it plays out right now. It's too new, like crypto, most people don't understand it. There's kind of like a stigma around a lot of it. Um, I, I would be surprised to see like Microsoft, you just acquired Activision going and implementing NFT gaming right now. It's just kind of too unproven. Um, but once it gets proven enough and once a couple of the games get big enough, um, I would guess that, that they do implement NFT gaming and adopt it. And that's when you get like the super mass adoption, right? So it's kind of forward to that future. Kevin, thank you. This was awesome. Don, I know you learned something because I did. And let's face it, you're not that far ahead. Um, (laughs) hope (laughs) Hope our audience enjoyed that. We'll leave the links to find and follow the much beloved CMS intern in the links in the description. That's all from us. Gentlemen, thank you. And we'll see everyone else for the next episode. Bye bye. Awesome.